Kids, you can go on back to your classes. It's good to see so many of y'all here. You're right, John. This is definitely the B team here this morning. Thanks for that uh, word of encouragement earlier. Oh, okay. <laughs> Man, I tell you what, that was great. I love playing drums. And then, um, although my arm is dead, and I left my water bottle back there. Ethan, if you want to sneak up here and bring that big blue water bottle to me, I wouldn't say no to that because I sing too loud. And uh, but we had a good time, and it's good to hear y'all sing as well. Um, I'm excited for a chance to share with you today. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll get settled here in just a minute. Thanks, man. If you're just now joining us, or perhaps you're like me and you need a, you need a refresher every couple weeks, we have been studying a deceptively important part of the Bible, the books of Ezra, Esther recently, and we just started Nehemiah last week. And this is, this is where the Jews are just now picking up the pieces from the exile, being exiled from their lands, being conquered, defeated, removed from their homes, the promised land, the land that, that God swore to their ancestors, was just an absolute wreck. Jerusalem, the capital city of King David, and Solomon's temple, the dwelling place of the Lord their God, were gone. The nation of Israel and its idols, they were long since gone, picked up and, and dispersed across the, the, the known world. But now Judah with the capital and the temple. They were just ruins as well. Small pawns, afterthoughts really, in a game played by larger and stronger nations. And all God's people who had survived this up to this point were left to wrestle with, with what God told Solomon when they dedicated the temple 400 years previously. Listen to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 19. The Lord says, but if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you. In this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus unto this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster upon them. They have to be thinking to themselves during this time, well, he, he did say that this would happen. In fact, God didn't just say it once on the occasion of the, the temple being dedicated. He told Moses this over and over again. And Moses wrote it down for generations to come. If you don't keep my commandments, if you chase after idols, I'm going to remove you from this land. And all the good things that I gave to your fathers, I will take from you, if that's what it takes. First five books of the Old Testament are just full of God reminding them 
this thing. Did you ever get punished for something, but you know that you earned it? Like, I have this memory. I was paddled in kindergarten. And I think that, that's probably illegal now. I don't think they allow you to do that. Some of the teachers in the room are probably thinking, gosh, I wish we could hit kids like that again. Um, <laughs> But anyways, I got caught red-handed writing on my desk. I was drawing, actually. Apparently what was going on was not exciting enough for me, and so I was expressing my artistic creativity. And I'll never forget, the teacher, she saw me from the other side of the room. She had eyes like a hawk, apparently. She said, Christopher, out in the hall. Apparently it wasn't the first time maybe I gotten caught doing this. And I immediately panicked and started trying to erase it, you know, like... For, <laughs> And honestly, like, it erases. So I don't know why it's a paddleable offense to start with. But there were tears, weeping and gnashing of teeth, all those things. But, you know, I got, I got paddled, traumatized for life, and that was that. She caught me. She caught me. Red-handed. That's what God's people are dealing with here. They're guilty of all the things that God told them not to do. They're guilty, and they know it. Even Nehemiah, in chapter 1 that we, we looked at last week, he confesses to this guilt, and he'd never even been to Jerusalem. He wasn't even born when the exile happened. He wasn't even born when the first Jews went back. But like our student ministry, I was thinking about this. Our student ministry has been studying the Sermon on the Mount at midweek, and like we're learning, if you know the law, you know you haven't followed it perfectly. And God does have incredibly high standards. So, so here's Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king of Persia, but a Jew. An extremely influential, prominent, successful person living in the only home he ever knew, but it wasn't really his true home. And after hearing about the desolate state of his, of his true home and the efforts to rebuild the city of his people where the name of his God dwells, he's shaken to his core. Today, we're going we're gonna to see what he does about it. So read with me in Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but a sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber 
to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Does anyone else have big ideas sometimes and aren't always able to see them come to fruition? I feel like that's kind of the story of my adult life, if I'm honest. I'm an ideas guy. I have, I have a really crazy imagination sometimes. But I have trouble getting certain things done. Sometimes I struggle where to begin, which means I usually don't even get started. I have all these grand plans to fix and update our home, <laughs> which if you've been to my house, that's why it's in a constant state of construction. I'm paralyzed by uh, this lack of time, tools, and talent. So there's this gap that exists, really, this, 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 this chasm, if you will, between what I want to do, what I know I should do, and what I actually do. So let me ask you, what do you do when you get big, crazy ideas sometimes? Do you just blaze ahead full speed? You're kind of a, kind of a, a doer first, ask questions later kind of person? Or do you think it to death? <laughs> and languish in indecision, maybe, and, and probably not end up doing anything at all. A better question for us this morning would be, what do you do when God calls you to do something hard? Something that you know won't be easy. Something, something dangerous, maybe. Or something that just doesn't make any sense at all. The space between call and action can feel like a million miles sometimes. And, this, and that first step is the hardest I think it was for Nehemiah. I know it is for me oftentimes. But that's where we're going to park this morning. Tony said last week that Nehemiah's response to the news from Jerusalem was three things. He, he mourned, he prayed, and he remembered. Today we're going to talk about three more things. Three things from our text this morning that explain how Nehemiah got from the idea to out the door. What we just read was Nehemiah taking the first physical steps towards doing something he felt God was calling him to do. He hadn't packed a bag yet. He had to get the king's permission first. The three things that Nehemiah shows us today that I want to focus on are resolve, plan, and trust. Consider this. Four months went by between the end of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2 in the book of Nehemiah. Four months between him finding out uh, of the situation in Jerusalem and then asking the king to go. Four months of mourning. And I'm tempted to say, no action, but I won't. Because had he been doing nothing, then he wouldn't be nearly as prepared for the conversation we just read. So what's he been doing between the month of Kislev and the month of Nisan? He resolved to do something 
about it. It's crazy to me to think that it's been 20 years ago this fall. Um, it feels like yesterday, I'm sure a lot of you will agree, but I was 16 years old when uh, September 11th terrorist attacks happened. And I, I remember clearly, I knew that night, shooting basketball in my backyard, looking up at the sky, I remember there weren't any airplanes in the air that night. I remember thinking, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to be a part of it somehow. I didn't know how. I had to wait two years before I was able to take those first steps. I was just one of many who resolved to do something about it. And at what point in those four months did Nehemiah make that decision that he had to go? I don't know. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter. It's an extremely big deal that he said yes to God. Because he knows better than us when we just read through this story this is extremely dangerous. We talked about this last week some. There's going to be obstacles for him at every turn. There are enemies already there who are trying to stop what he wants to go do. And you know what? He might have been more likely to get his head chopped off just by asking the king than by any enemy over in Jerusalem. King Artaxerxes, super famous guy, was no friend of the rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem. He, he was personally responsible. Though he sent Ezra, he decreed also that they had to stop the rebuilding of the walls and of the temple. Now, he did this because, like a lot of other powerful people in, in that day, they thought that by letting the Jews build walls around the city, it would only encourage them to organize and to rebel against the Persians. And you know what? They had done it before, and they would do it again. They were right. <laughs> but you add on top of that the fact that Persian kings, they were not uh, conservative in their killing. Artaxerxes killed his older brother so he could be first in line for the throne. Then he killed the man who killed his, own th his father just for, for good measure. He killed a lot of people. So it was a complicated time to live in, even as cupbearer for the king like Nehemiah was. He's taken a huge risk by asking the king to go. And you can tell by his demeanor during the conversation that we just read. He knows he's jeopardizing not only his position, which is a good one, but his life. In verse 2, when the king realizes that he's dealing with some kind of sadness, Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. It's because he knows to ask, to act, is the point of no return. But that's what he's resolved to do. Has anyone ever heard of the phrase, you probably have, uh, crossing the Rubicon? Uh, I love little nuggets in history. This really gets me, this really gets me going. The, the, the Rubicon is a little tiny river in the middle of uh, Italy. I've got a picture of it. Yeah, a tiny little sucker right there in the center. But for years, in antiquity, back when Rome was a republic, uh, this was the northernmost border of their territory. Just, but just a little insignificant. I mean, you could jump over it almost. But when Julius Caesar, the Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's guy, in January 10th, 49 BC, he deliberately crossed this river from north to south with his army. When he knew that it was illegal to do so, the, the Roman government told him, you, you cannot cross this river. 
But when he did so, on that day, he plunged the world into this giant civil war, which led to him becoming the first emperor, which led to him becoming, being assassinated, and all these other things, which is, are fascinating, that set the stage for the world in which God sent Jesus. So that's all amazing, but it started by breaking one little law, one little decision to cross one little river. And legend tells us that as he crossed the river, Caesar said, Alea yacta est, which is Latin for the die has been cast. The point of no return, come what may. And all of us, sooner or later, have a crossing of the Rubicon moment in our lives, or, or two, or three, or you average one a month, maybe. You, you know what these, these things are. You understand what these life-altering decisions can be. You don't need me to give examples. All we can do is resolve to be faithful to do what God calls us to do. When Joshua and the people of Israel first take possession of the promised land, he says in Joshua 24, 15, Choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day. Resolve who you will serve. Just like uh, the disciples in, uh, in Acts chapter 5, when they're arrested after preaching Jesus crucified, and they have no reason not to expect any less punishment than what Jesus suffered on the cross. Instead, they say, we must obey God rather than men. Resolve who you're going to obey, God or men. And Paul, going to what he knows will almost certainly lead to his death in Acts chapter 20, says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Constrained by the Spirit, compelled. He's resolved to follow God's Spirit wherever it leads him. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He resolved to go. He may have had his pity party for a while, we don't know. He may have looked around like Moses for someone better, more equipped to go in his place, I don't know. He may have struggled most of the four months with this before coming to terms that he had to go himself. But he resolved to accept the call God gave him. May the same be true for us. The second thing we can learn from Nehemiah today is to plan. I know it sure would be nice if we were all so in tune with the Lord that just the second he calls, our bags are packed and we're out the door ready to follow whatever the cost. But I'll say again, I'm not, I'm not ready to throw stones at Nehemiah for the four months, but that, that gap between chapters one and two. And here's why. Let me stick with the uh, renovation metaphor for a second. If I decide to build some storage shelves in my basement, which I'm contemplating currently, I wouldn't just immediately start cutting two-by-fours and like randomly start piecing them together like a jigsaw puzzle. There's actually a better way. 
set a goal. You measure. You do some math. You count the cost. Then you measure two, three more times before you make the first cut. Our text today is loaded with evidence that Nehemiah didn't resolve to go just before he brought the king his wine. This was a conversation Nehemiah was ready for. He prepared for this moment. We know from Ezra 4 that Artaxerxes stopped the rebuilding of Jerusalem because he was afraid of rebellion. I want you to notice a few things in our text this morning that, about how Nehemiah approaches the subject uh, as he's about to ask the king for this huge favor. The first is, well, the king asks him, what's wrong, basically? And the first thing Nehemiah says back to him is, let the king live forever. This is basically like saying, your majesty. And it would have been how you would start, how you by law would have to, would have to start every conversation you had with the man. Uh, it's, it's a sign of deep respect. Yes, maybe respect and fear, but that's how the Persians liked it. What it tells us is that Nehemiah is on his side. He is, after all, the official cupbearer to the king, which, which means the king would have trusted him with his life. But Nehemiah stays in his lane and uses proper customs and courtesies here. There's a lot we can learn, I think, from that. Second thing is, he doesn't play the blame game. He just states facts. The home of his ancestors is in ruins. Now, Nehemiah knows that Artaxerxes is partially responsible for this, just as much as Artaxerxes knows he's responsible for this. But he says it the right way, which is important. Thirdly, and, and this is really interesting to me, Persian kings, uh, like those of most ancient civilizations, they were fascinated and obsessed, really, with honoring and respecting burial practices. It was a big deal to them, and they wanted it to be a big deal to others as well. It's a certainty that as this conversation happens, Artaxerxes' uh, tomb is already being built. It would have been about twice the size of our building. I mean, just think about the pyramids. They were all about this kind of thing. So when Nehemiah it says in verse 3, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins. He's playing to the sympathies of the king. He doesn't say the place of my God's temple because that just wouldn't land the same way, wouldn't get the same kind of sympathy. Nehemiah knows the king and he's purposefully crafting this problem in a way that will help the king give him a favorable response. And fourthly, starting in verse 7, after the king has already approved his request, Notice how Nehemiah is able to ask for such specifics. He says, I'll need letters to those in charge of the, of the territories between here and Jerusalem so I can get safely there. And I'll need, I need permission to get, to get wood to do all the things that, that I want to do. Nehemiah has thought this through. He's, after he resolved to go, he started making plans. He's not doing this halfway. He's not flying blind, per se. He's using the abilities and the experience he has to his advantage. We make plans every day for the things we think are important. Jesus sent his disciples ahead to the places and towns that he was about to travel to. Paul sent letters out to churches saying, I hope to come to you soon. 
It took, a, it took teams of people to grow the church, just like it did this week. Theodore Roosevelt, president, uh, he said something, he, he said this, he said, nothing worth having comes easy. Now, I've heard variations of that saying my whole life, mostly from my dad, mostly when I am impatient or pouting about something. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save talking about the theology of work for, for Tony next week, but I'll just say this. If something is important, we'll prepare for it. If something is important to us, we'll plan for it. I tell you what is important to me by how I spend my time, and vice versa. I spend a lot of time uh, these days at home with our 17-month-old. And, you know, you can break it down however you want what it means to be a parent, but at the end of the day, every moment, every single moment that I have with him, I'm planning, I'm investing, I'm preparing, I'm discipling, because that's what God has called me to do. What does it say about us when we don't plan well? Jesus says in Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I don't want to build my house on sand. I want to plan better than that. I don't want to build my life, what little time I have left, on anything but the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If you want your life to count, then plan accordingly. <laughs> Nehemiah was ready. He was ready when the time came. May the same be true of us. Lastly, Lastly, this morning, I want to talk about how Nehemiah chose to trust. I've already talked some about why Nehemiah having the courage to ask the king to go was such a big deal. It was very dangerous. And as we'll see going forward, the danger Nehemiah faces is only just beginning. But I don't want to limit the discussion to simply a matter of danger versus self-preservation because, you know, life... Life is just an essence of moments, really, and, and not all are fight-or-flight situations. Most of the time, we're just trying to do the right thing, and we can't see the forest for the trees. But truly, everything we do, everything we do or don't do, our actions tell the story of our relationship with God. Do we trust Him or not? What we believe about God informs everything we do, whether we like it or not. You know, there's a debate about the word faith. Is it a noun or a verb? 
I hope you'd agree that the Bible tells us it's both. Because faith without works, without action, is dead, right? That's James chapter 2, verse 17. That's why Nehemiah is such a good example for us today. He's not perfect, but it's no coincidence that in verse 4, chapter 2, I just read, when the king says, what are you requesting, even in that moment, he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Listen to this. There is no greater indicator of how much you trust God than your inclination to pray. And there's a direct correlation, you better believe, from prayer to action. Faith in God is not passive. It never has been. Is the Bible not, is the Bible not just one big example after another of men and women being called to do things they have no chance of doing on their own? Nehemiah acted because he knew, he knew, Following God's call to the ruins of Jerusalem was better than staying in the palace of the most powerful man on the planet. That's trust. And he knew God's word. That should be a lesson to us as well. He knew that the Lord would not abandon his people forever. He knew that someday, somebody would rebuild the temple and the city walls. And why not me, he said. He knew God could do anything. And he was the cupbearer to the king. He had tools and resources other people could just barely dream about. He saw a need. He heard a call. He resolved to go. He made a plan. Trusted in his God. And in verse 8 it says, The king granted me what I asked for. For the good hand of my God was upon me. And off he went. May the same be true of us. I can only imagine that as, as Nehemiah headed off to, towards Jerusalem, as he left the only home he'd, never, he'd ever known, heading towards his, his true earthly home, the home of his fathers. I hope that he thought about what Moses told Joshua right before Moses died and Joshua led the people into the promised land. Deuteronomy 31. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Nehemiah knew those words were just as true for him as they were for Joshua. And the same is true for us. The same God still calls us to come home. Matthew chapter 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a hard thing, isn't it? It's hard to want to die to yourself. I confess. But that's why he came. 
And if you resolve in your heart to know who God is, if you wrestle with the truth, planning and preparing like your life depends on it, and it does, and more, if you trust that Jesus came to do for you what you could not do for yourself, then you'll find yourself just like Nehemiah, going, doing, acting, faith in motion. Crazy things, too. Things that no one should be able to do. Things you can't take credit for. Things only God can do. Things that are foolish to a dying world. If you don't know what it's like to step out in faith, don't leave here this morning without resolving to know him. I'm about to hop back on the drums and we're going to sing some more. But there are people here who would love to pray for you, elders like, like Bob and John, David. If you need someone to pray with and to talk to, we're here. Come grab me. I can play that song acoustic. It doesn't matter. God loves you. He'll never ask you to do what he hasn't already done and more. Don't settle for being stuck between call and action. He says go because he came. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the double-edged sword that strikes us and, and wounds us almost because we know of our inadequacies. But it encourages us because it reminds us page after page, time and time again, that we don't have to be enough because you are enough. And the same God that led Nehemiah to do that great work, the same God that, that called Abraham, the same God that, 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 that called Moses to do the crazy things he did, the same God that led David to, to laugh in the face of, of death and trust. The same God that led Zerubbabel back in spite of all odds to rebuild a city, to begin that great work. The same God that, that, that led Paul to go out into the, to the known world delivering a message he knew. He knew would get him killed. It's the same God that leads us to be kind to our neighbors. The same God that leads us to be hard workers at our jobs. The same God who leads us to be a people of grace and of forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. We thank you, Lord, for how good you are. As we sing this last song together, 
Would we just be filled with a vision of your holiness and your goodness to us? We thank you above all for Jesus and his righteousness. We have no hope outside of him. But he came. He came. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.